right. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 11? So if you're new with us or watching online, we are studying Revelation here at Calvary on Wednesday night. And tonight we come to Revelation chapter 11. I think a very exciting chapter, to say the least. Uh, this chapter tells us that in the last days, the days just prior to Jesus' return to establish his kingdom, uh, Israel will be back in the land. They will once again be in possession of Jerusalem for the most part. The temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will again be offered to God. Now, through the Middle Ages, Reformed theologians took all of the promises and prophecies that applied to the nation of Israel and ascribed them to the church because for all intents and purposes, Israel had been destroyed and was out of the picture, biblically speaking. Uh, that became a real problem for these theologians when it came to all the prophetic passages concerning God's future plans for Israel. Uh, they had, as they desperately sought to yank them out of the Bible, twist them into allegory, and then stuff them back into the Bible as pertaining to the church. Some real gymnastics took place and continues to this day. They began talking about God's Israel, the church, and that Israel was never in the plan of God in that she was always simply a metaphor for the church, and therefore any talk of God's plan for Israel, especially in the last days, was erroneous. And yet, guys, listen to what Paul said to the Christians living in Rome. This is out of Romans 10, verse 1. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, if the church is Israel, this statement by Paul makes no sense. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the church is that they may be saved. doesn't work, okay? Because it doesn't go together, okay? Uh, the scriptures are clear that God isn't done with the nation of Israel. Romans 11, verses 1 and 2 read, Paul said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And I just would encourage you to reread all of Romans chapter 11 again uh, to get the full impact of Paul's, of Paul's treatise on the subject that Israel is not done, that God has not moved on that uh, God still has a future plan for the nation of Israel. And folks, that's what we're studying basically in Revelation. Not that that's the whole thing, but it does get into God's future plan for Israel. So as we come to chapter 11, uh, let's set the scene. And remember that Israel is in view, not the church. Okay, uh, The place, the place is Jerusalem. The time is the first half of the tribulation period. Now, as we have come to, through chapter 9, we're already into the second half of the tribulation. So chapters 10 through 14 are a parenthetical grouping of chapters. And uh, really, they're a flashback, picking up some of the detail that happened in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but was not recorded in those prior chapters. So now John stops and uh, God gives them a flashback, 
and now he's kind of putting, uh, filling in some of the gaps, all right, uh, showing people, uh, telling us what uh, other things happened during this period of time. So, but it takes place in the first half of the tribulation period, or what we would more properly call the 70th week of Daniel. One of the things that makes this passage so exciting is that it confirms that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, I believe with the help and blessing of the Antichrist when he makes his appearance on the world scene. Now, many believe that the covenant the Antichrist makes with Israel, as prophesied in Daniel 9, verse 27, will include a provision allowing them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Let me read to you Daniel 9, 27, and we'll make reference to it numerous times tonight. It's pivotal in uh, our study tonight. But in Daniel 9, 27, it's talking about the Antichrist. And it says, He, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for a week, a seven-year period. He's talking about Israel, okay? But in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Daniel 9.27 says that the Antichrist, uh, at the midpoint of this seven-year covenant he is going to make with the nation of Israel, uh, will cause the sacrifices and offerings to cease implying, obviously, uh, a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. All right, that's just, it's implied. I believe that Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 prophesy of an invasion of the Middle East prior, prior to the Antichrist rising to power as the leader of the one world government. As you read the language in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 9, there's going to be some kind of nuclear exchange at this period of time, yet future to us, but I believe in the near future. But as you read the language of Ezekiel 38 and 9, there's going to be some sort of nuclear exchange that will so terrify the people of the world. Think of it. The unthinkable has happened. We've used nuclear weapons against each other. We're going to, we're going to destroy the planet. They're terrified. They're going to be terrified. And uh, as such, it's going to compel the people of the world, to desire. Well, what is going to cause uh, nations to want to give up their sovereignty, their sovereign national status, and federate under a one-world government? Something pretty dramatic has got to happen. I'm not saying it's only this. There might be, along with it, a financial collapse worldwide, of the worldwide banking system. Who knows what else? But I do know that part of it is going to be this limited nuclear exchange at this time. And it's going to compel the people of the world to want to federate under a one-world government, enter the Antichrist. This will also lead to a seven-year peace treaty that the Antichrist, and by extension his world government, will make with the nation of Israel, again as described in Daniel 9, verse 27. This will no doubt be in part, this, this treaty that the Antichrist makes with Israel will no doubt be in part to thank them for defeating the evil army. Read the nations that come together against Israel at the beginning of Ezekiel 38. But this treaty, 
that the Antichrist is going to make with the nation of Israel will be in part, I think, to thank them for defeating the evil army that sought not only to destroy Israel, but also to bring the world under its control. And the Antichrist is going to spin this in such a way, I believe, when he comes, is that these evil nations that came against Israel, they wanted to destroy Israel, but ultimately their goal was to rule the world. That's why you need me. See? He's going to come across as the ultimate man of peace. You know, the, the savior of the world. The good, ultimate good guy. Okay? It's all a deception. That's why he comes, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, riding a white horse, right? Uh, was, does it say wearing white? I can't remember. Uh, but he, he comes looking like a good guy even though he's the ultimate bad guy, okay? But I believe that, um, that this defeat of this invading armies, of these invading armies spoken about uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 9 could actually, listen, pave the way for the government of the Antichrist to be established. I mean, you see, after the limited nuclear exchange prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 9, uh, many will be forced, many people in, uh, around the world will be forced to believe that the world must come together in a one-world government before it winds up destroying itself with any further nuclear conflicts. But also, I know this is going to get thrown in, into the whole mix, but also to finally solve the existential threat of climate change. But listen, as Bible believe, you know, so the Antichrist wants to thank Israel for defeating all these armies, you know? We know better. As evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, we know better as to who will be the cause of this invading army's defeat, right? The invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 will be directed at Israel and should, for all intents and purposes, take them completely out. I mean, you're talking about Russia, Iran, Northern Africa, and a host of other Muslim nations all joining forces to wipe out Israel. They should never be able to come against that and survive, right? They're so going to be so outnumbered that when God steps up and fights for his people, which he said he's going to do, nobody's going to doubt that it was the God of Israel who did this. Well, I tell you this, uh, this is going to bring about a spiritual revival in the nation of Israel like nothing they've ever seen, as many Jews will believe that God intervened to save his people from this invasion of their enemies. And this is going to cause many Jews to return to Judaism as their national religion. Now, today, uh, there's, there, there are some Orthodox Jews in Israel, obviously. But um, for the most part, the national religion of Israel today is secularism. Secularism. They're, they're a secular nation. Remember in Ezekiel 37, when God prophesied, how that the nation of Israel was going to eventually was dead for years, right? Ever since uh, the first century A.D., uh, the nation has been pretty much dead, but it's going to be revived in the last days. Remember the bones coming together? Uh, Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones, and, uh, and, and, and I think the angel said to him, or the Lord said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, you know. And so God begins to bring the bones together, and as they stand up as skeletons and flesh, muscle and flesh form on the bones, and they stand upright, but there's no what in them. There's no breath. There's no spirit. They are a secular, they're alive, 
physically alive as a nation, but they're not alive spiritually, right? That's going to change. Now, that's going to change. I'm not saying they're going to be all born again. I'm just saying the shift is going to be from secularism to a great move uh, to embrace the ancient Judaistic rites and ceremonies and, and all the religion and all the things that went along with uh, the uh, Mosaic Covenant and so on. But there's going to be a real push at this time because so many people are going to realize in Israel that this had to be God. There's no way we could have defeated all these Russia, Iran, uh, Northern Africa, all these other Muslim There's no way God did this. He's real. He's with us, right? And all these secular Jews are going to start becoming on fire uh, religious Jews. And there's going to be a push to rebuild their temple like never before. Because they want to begin then to, sac to begin the sacrifices and offerings once, once again to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple has been a serious objective for oh, around 35 years. All right? But we'll shift into high gear when the Antichrist signs the a treaty with the nation of Israel. Listen, allowing them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. That's critical. That's critical. I mean, they're not going to want to build that temple anywhere else but the place where Solomon built it. And so that's been kind of the wrench in the, in the, you know, in the gears, all right? Uh, they want to rebuild the temple, but as we're going to see when we end this study, they can't. At least they don't think they can, all right? Because something else is occupying that spot. It's called the Dome of the Rock, all right? Hang on to that, all right? But... Um, the Antichrist is going to sign this treaty with Israel, and we believe part of it will include a provision for them to be able to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount uh, in fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 9.27. Now, guys, a rebuilt temple wasn't just prophesied by Daniel. This was something that Jesus himself affirmed when he mentioned the prophecy of Daniel in the Olivet Discourse. Turn to Matthew 24. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see, future, right? Some people want to say that this is a, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, that was, you know, almost 200, it was actually 200 years earlier. Uh, it already happened. So Jesus said, no, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation. Yeah, Antiochus, the Syrian uh, uh, leader, he desecrated the temple in those days. But he was not the issue. He was a foreshadowing of another who would come and desecrate the temple in a future time. We know him as the Antichrist. But therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and, the, and uh, Matthew adds, whoever reads, let him understand. Reads what? Well, understand Daniel 9.27. Look, the holy place in this context, in Matthew 24.15, the holy place is a reference to the holy of holies. 
where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Of course, for there to be a holy of holies that the Antichrist will desecrate by putting his image in, well, it obviously implies a rebuilt temple. Paul the Apostle also prophesied that the temple would be rebuilt and desecrated by the Antichrist. Uh, let me just correct that. When Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, which I want you to turn there, it was about 55 A.D. The temple had not been destroyed yet. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. Whether Paul knew the temple was going to be destroyed, we don't really know. But he did know it was going to be defiled. He tells us that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, defiled by the Antichrist. Let me read it to you. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of God's judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In Revelation 11, John is standing in front of this rebuilt temple. The year is around 95 A.D. Now, this must have blown John's mind. Because in 70 A.D., he was alive and saw that General uh, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, and uh, the Roman army destroyed the temple, in fact, the entire city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And now John is transported into the future and sees the temple rebuilt. He saw it destroyed, in fact, the whole city. And now as he's transported into the temple, he's standing in the future, he's standing in front of a rebuilt temple. Now, please understand, guys, this is not a vision like in an allegory, Okay. This is something John saw firsthand. I believe he was transported into the future. And he actually saw the literal temple that had been rebuilt. I'm talking about a brick and mortar building. Okay? How do we know that? Because he was told to measure it. Look at verse 1, Revelation 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. John said, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Now the word reed is kalamas, and refers to a reed-like plant that grew in the Jordan Valley uh, to a height of 15 to 20 feet. These reeds were hollow and lightweight, and yet they were rigid enough to be used as a walking staff or a walking stick, or a staff. You can read about this in Ezekiel 29, verse 6. It makes reference, mentions this, right? But also these reeds, because they were long and lightweight, were also ideal to use in measuring things. In measuring things. Uh, in Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, an angel used such a rod, such a reed, to measure the millennial temple. Again, verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, in the New Testament, there are two words which are translated temple. 
The actual temple proper or the temple building itself was called Naos. That is the word that's used here in Revelation 11, verse 1. Uh, the Naos was the building, uh, a relatively small building in comparison to the whole temple area, precinct, or compound, as it's sometimes referred to. The temple proper, the building, contained two compartments. As you entered in, the first compartment was called the holy place. And uh, there was the table of showbread off to the right. There was the menorah off to the left. And right in front uh, of the person who walked in uh, that sat out in front of a veil or a curtain that separated the first compartment from the second compartment was a little golden altar that was used to burn incense on, which represented the prayers of God's people. Okay? The second compartment was called the Holy of Holies. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant originally sat uh, at one time. And, um, and may again, by the way, uh, if you talk to uh, Orthodox Jews in Israel, especially those who uh, are working in the Temple Institute, they'll tell you they've got the Ark. I doubt that. But they'll tell, we know where it is. And we're waiting for the right time to bring it out. If they really have the Ark, and they bring that thing out, you're going to see Israel go wild in wanting to rebuild their temple immediately. Okay? Now, we know that ark sat in Solomon's temple. We know that, right? But before the Babylonians came, it disappeared. I'm not saying supernaturally. Some believe that Jeremiah took it and hid it. Because Jeremiah had been proclaiming the Babylonians were coming. Nobody was listening to him. Nobody was taking him seriously. So there's a tradition that says Jeremiah took it and he hid it. And maybe some of the Jews know where it is. We don't know. Um, but it was, it's been gone since before the Babylonian captivity. But the temple, the temple proper, the Naas, um, sat on top of Mount Moriah which is still called the Temple Mount to this day. The temple proper, again, Naos, was surrounded by 35 acres, uh, which together were called the temple precincts. Uh, the Greek word for the whole area is Hiron. The temple building and all the temple precincts, okay? Hiron. Uh, the altar that's mentioned here, okay, that John was supposed to measure, is probably, no doubt, it's no doubt the brazen altar of sacrifice located outside the temple building, outside the temple proper, uh, since that is where those who worship, quote-unquote, as the passage says, uh, in the temple would have gathered. You see, guys, the common Jew were never permitted to enter the temple proper. Uh, only the priests could enter that first compartment, the holy place, and they entered to burn incense on the golden altar of incense. Any priest could enter into that first compartment the holy place only one person the high priest could enter into the second compartment the holy of holies and then only once a year on yom kippur the day of atonement the worshipers in john's vision depict a remnant of orthodox jews alive during the tribulation who are worshiping god what is the purpose for John being told to measure this temple that he's looking at? Well, obviously it was not to determine its physical dimensions, since none are given. So then why? Why was he told to measure it? 
I believe, first of all, because it represents, I believe, first of all, to show us that it's a literal temple, not a symbolic temple. Uh, you'd be shocked to know how many theologians down through the centuries uh, have interpreted this temple to be symbolic of the church. It's not a real temple, they'll tell you. It's symbolic of the church. I totally disagree with that. I totally disagree with that. So then, why else would God want John to measure this temple? Well, I believe further because it represents how God sometimes, sometimes marks or measures things out, listen, for judgment and destruction. Turn to Amos 7. I want to show you this. Amos has been called by God to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the house of Jeroboam. But in, at this time, Amaziah was king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he was very corrupt, as all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, were corrupt. Okay, But verse 7, Amos 7, verse 7. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife, and I'm, he's talking to Amaziah now, the king, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. Uh, you shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. And the language is God is is measuring out the city for destruction, uh, judgment and destruction. That's the idea here. It had gotten so wicked that, and, and they had not listened to any of the prophets that God had sent them, calling them to repentance. And so now God is pronouncing judgment. And it's interesting, he's talking about measuring and plumb lines and, and survey lines. He's measuring out this city for, dis, for destruction is the idea. I believe, guys, in the same way John was told to measure the temple of God, including the altar and those who worship in it, I believe to mark them out for judgment. You say, well, why does God mark out his temple for judgment? Because this is going to be a defiled temple. It's a place where Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews, who have rejected the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, their Messiah. They have rejected him. They don't receive, have not received him as their Messiah and Savior. They have not received his blood as atonement for their sins, are now offering the blood of animals, which under the Old Covenant was acceptable. God told them to, what to offer in the way of blood sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant's over. It was designed to point people to Christ, right? Uh, it was a tutor, Paul said, to take the Jews by the hand and take them to Jesus, who was the one who would take away their sins once and for all. I mean, 
Under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and lambs and so on would temporarily cover sin so that people could have fellowship with God. It was never a, a, an ultimate solution. It only temporarily covered sins until the next time you sin, you have to bring more sacrifices. But it, it always pointed to a, a, another covenant. And God made this clear. Read Jeremiah 31. God made it very clear that he was going to make another covenant with the house of Israel uh, and so on and so forth. That would be the new covenant under Jesus, the Lamb of God who wouldn't just cover uh, sins with his blood but would take them away, justifying, atoning for guilty sinners forever, right? Under the old covenant, the blood of animals was acceptable. God ordained it. God prescribed it. God commanded it. But now that Jesus has come to offer animal blood and animal sacrifices when the Lamb of God has already come was not no longer acceptable. It was uh, an abomination. Turn to Isaiah 66. As God now considers these animal sacrifices, as defiled and an abomination. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now listen. Listen to what God says, verse 3. He who kills a bull as, uh, is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering uh, as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense to God as if he blesses an idol. Y y these are all things that God had prescribed under the Old Covenant. Now they're an abomination. To practice what God says is done and to refuse to embrace the New Covenant of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is an abomination. Verse Verse 3 again, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own way. In other words, they rejected God's way of righteousness. Didn't Paul say that about the Jews in Romans 10? They being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of, of God in Christ. You know, whenever we seek to, to reject the way God has ordained by which we approach him, get saved, have fellowship, ultimately go to heaven. Well, I don't like that, Lord. Uh, here, I'm going to give, here's, here's what I, I think I, we should do here. Uh, yes, Jesus died for my sins, but then I, I want to really include all the works that I've done, like lighting of the candles and praying of the rosary, or, you know, I'm picking on the Catholics again because I'm an ex-Catholic, but I'm just saying, right? There, there are those that want to embrace Christ. Yes, Jesus, but plus, you know, uh, these sacrifices and uh, feast days and, and so on. They don't realize that this is an abomination to God. Here they are. They are conducting their religious um, ceremonies, uh, embracing their religious 
system, but it's not God's system. And it's an abomination to him. It's a slap in his face. It's saying to God, well, your son, yeah, he did most of it, but I'm going to step in and finish the work he started. And God will not share his glory with another. Read Galatians 5 again. Paul says, if you tried to add your works to the completed work of Christ, you forfeit the, the grace of God, fall out, you divorce yourself from Christ, and, uh, and uh, you, you lose uh, the gift of grace God is offering you. They delight. Their soul delights in their abominations. Religious people just can't let go of their works. They've got too much invested. You know? They, they just do not want to believe a system that says just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. It's too easy. And, and I've, you know, I've, I've worked too hard uh, at my religion to let all of it go now. So they delight in their abominations, God says at the end of verse 3, verse 4. So I will, I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not, in which I do not delight. Wow. So here, guys, as we have entered into Revelation 11, we see the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem as prophesied by Daniel and the Lord Jesus. Now, let me stop here and, and uh, give you a quick history of the Jewish temple. Okay, I think it's important since this chapter revolves around uh, this temple. Okay, Let me just say this, and I'll just do this quickly. There are actually five Jewish temples that are talked about in scripture. Five Jewish temples. Solomon built the first temple on Jerusalem's Mount Moriah in around the year 1050 BC. These are approximations. Roughly 460 years later, the Babylonians came and utterly destroyed Jerusalem and with it the temple, they leveled it in 586 BC. After the Babylonian captivity was over, and the Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel, uh, the building of the second temple began around 536 B.C. under Zerubbabel and Joshua, often referred to as Zerubbabel's temple. It was completed in 519 B.C., but was a relatively low-budget operation when compared with the glory and the expense of Solomon's magnificent structure at the time Solomon's temple was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And here, you know, that's been destroyed. And so here they come out of captivity and, you know, with a very low budget, you know, and they're building with shoestring and bubble gum, you know. But we got a temple at least. <laughs> In fact, interesting, uh, one of the prophets uh, makes reference, God speaking, when they built this second temple, the young men were rejoicing who had never seen Solomon's temple. They were rejoicing. We got a temple again. We're going to worship God. The old Jews who had seen Solomon's temple were weeping because the glory of this temple couldn't compare with the glory of Solomon's temple. So you know what God said? Mark it down. He said, 
the glory of this second temple is going to eclipse the glory of that former temple. How did that happen? When God himself walked into that temple in the person of Jesus Christ. The light of the world, right? You can't get any more glorious than God's presence. I don't care. You could have the most ornate. You know, I, there, there's a program on TV that always starts off. It's in New York. And it always starts off with this massive church, cathedral. I, I don't know if, if it's St. Peter's or uh, St. John. I don't know what it is. It's massive. It must take up a whole city block. New York, right? The thing has to cost billions. I don't care if you have that kind of a cathedral or you have this little room here. Wherever God's presence is, that place is more glorious. Just because there is a gigantic cathedral here and there sprinkled throughout the world, many of them completely dead, completely dead, and you have little small groups and little storefront churches and, and, and a church like this sprinkled throughout America that loves the Lord, honors his word, praises his name, he's here. God inhabits the praises of his people. Amen. Amen. And so the world looks at us and goes, you're playing church. I had a woman say that to, to me years ago. We were meeting in a small building, a small room. Her daughter brought her because her daughter was coming, was excited, had accepted the Lord. Mom, you got to come. You got to see what's going on. We were, it was a, a, a fourth of this room. Just a little room. We just start, we're just starting. And it came back to us that after the mother and the daughter had left, the mother had said to the daughter, they're just playing church. Why? Because we didn't have a church building or a cathedral. See, that's how ignorant people are. We know better. We know better. Because we're the church. And wherever we are, those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is with us, he is in us, and it's glorious. It's glorious, right? So they built this kind of low-budget temple. Finished it in 519. They were excited, most of them, okay? But um, wasn't much to look at. Well, 500 years later, King Herod the Great shows up and begins building what some scholars and historians refer to as the third temple. Starts to build it in about 20 B.C. Now, the Jewish leaders uh, and scholars refer to it, I think even to this day, as the second temple refurbished. And the reason they say this is because it really wasn't a new build. Herod didn't start from scratch, but rather was a massive reconstruction project of Zerubbabel's temple. See, Herod wanted to garner favor with the Jewish people. Uh, he was not Jewish. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. But Rome liked him and stuck him as the, as the king of Israel, king of the Jews, right? Well, that graded the Jewish people. He wasn't even one of them. So he was always working hard to ingratiate himself with the Jewish people. And he decided the best way to do that was to renovate this kind of dilapidated, low-budget 
building called their temple. And so he began to renovate it uh, and to expand it. That's where the precinct comes in. It's in Herod's time. He expanded it 35 acres, right? And the way he did it was remarkable, but we don't have time to get into it. But he greatly beautified the temple. In fact, uh, it took him 46 years. He poured what we would call today millions of dollars into this pro 46 years. And again, what the finished product was one of the wonders of the ancient world in his day, which became our Lord Jesus Christ's day, right? In fact, Jesus referred to that temple now, Herod's temple, okay? Many call it Herod's temple, but uh, Jesus referred to this temple, the one that was uh, around when he was on the earth. Uh, he said in Matthew 24, verse 2, There shall not be left one stone standing upon another till all is thrown down. 38 years later, or 38 years after Jesus' resurrection, his prophecy came to pass. While sacking the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Romans set fire to the temple. The fire was so hot that it caused the gold in the ceilings to melt, run down the walls, and got into the cracks of these massive stones that made up the temple uh, of, of, of uh, Herod's refurbished temple. The soldiers pulled down every stone off the walls to get at the gold in the cracks. In fact, they did such a thorough job, you can't even really tell where the original temple sat, or that, where that second temple sat. Okay, they, they completely dismantled it. One, and I say brick, these were massive stones. Okay, so it wasn't the little bricks they pulled out. Okay, massive stones. They, they, they pulled them, threw them, many of them down the Tropian Valley. You can still see them to this day if you go to Israel. Okay, um, but, but they fulfilled Jesus' prophecy to the letter. To the letter. Um, I think that most evangelicals refer to Solomon's temple as the first temple, Zerubbabel's temple as the second temple, and Herod's temple as the third temple, the one that was destroyed in 70 AD. The Lord himself will build the fifth temple, the fifth temple, during the millennial kingdom. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Haggai 2.9, Zechariah 6, verses 12 through 13. There are some Orthodox Jews who will not accept any millennial temple as legitimate unless it is built by the Messiah himself. That's why they are not on board with any talk of building a Jewish temple without Messiah. Because we're going to talk about this more in a moment. Um, there are many in Israel that want to build a temple. Uh, I think that maybe the state of Israel will get involved too. But to an Orthodox Jew, that's anathema. Messiah's got to build the temple when he returns. So they're not on board. They don't really want uh, a temple built until Messiah comes back and builds it himself. Well, of course, they're waiting for Messiah to come, uh, whereas we know he has already come and is coming again. And when he, and when he, um, when he, is, when he comes at his second coming, he's going to establish um, his kingdom. And at that time, he's going to authorize the building of the millennial temple. 
Now listen, since only believing Jews and Gentiles will be allowed to enter the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns, all the Jews that enter into the kingdom are going to be Messianic Jews. Okay? Those who believe in Jesus. And they are going to rejoice when he authorizes the rebuilding of the, of the millennial temple because they know who he is. They have received him as their Messiah, their King, their Savior, and so on. So they are going to rejoice, okay, um, with the, this new uh, millennial temple being built. There is a fourth temple. There is a fourth temple. We call it the tribulation temple that is yet to be built. The tribulation temple will be built early in the first half of the tribulation period under the patronage and protection of the Antichrist so that Orthodox Jews can once again participate or practice their faith by offering sacrifices to Yahweh according to Mosaic law. However, in the middle of the last seven years, so he makes this covenant, the Antichrist, with Israel for seven years, seven-year period. And part of it is to rebuild their temple. The temple gets rebuilt in, at the exact midpoint of the seven-year period, right? Um, the Antichrist is going to enter the rebuilt temple, stop the sacrifices and offerings to God Almighty. He will then set up his image in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God. This is the abomination that causes desolation, or in other words, it's going to be the abomination that renders the temple defiled and unusable for the worship of the true and living God. It will officially begin the last three and a half years when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. That is going to be the first day of the last three and a half years. Remember now, a biblical prophetic year is 360 days not 365. So when we talk about uh, three and a half years, we're talking about 42 months. We're talking about uh, 1,260 days. What will happen when the 1,260th day comes after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies? Jesus Christ will return, Revelation 19, to establish his kingdom. They know when he's going to come. And they're going to be ready for him. Or so they think. We talked about that, right? We'll talk about it again. We'll get to chapter 19. But this last three and a half years, which starts when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies until Jesus returns, is going to be a, an escalation, a ramping up of the judgment of God called now the Great Tribulation. Turn to Matthew 24. And of course, we've read these numerous times, but... Bear with me. Let's read them again. Matthew 24, again, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, this would be actually the holy of holies, whoever reads, let him understand. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop on their patio not go down to take anything out of his house, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2.
2 Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 3. Paul said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Again, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is when the Antichrist is going to establish a brand new religion. It's interesting, in Revelation 17, when he comes on the scene, he needs the world's religions to back him. He's going to come on the scene as a man that's very pro-religion. He's going to unite the world, not only in a one-world government, but a one-world religion, which the false prophet, his number two man, is going to uh, head up, okay? And that's why John sees a woman riding a beast. Okay, the woman is the church. The beast is the Antichrist. She's riding the beast because she's controlling the beast initially. At one point, the beast no longer needs her. He turns on her and rips her to pieces because at that point, he now establishes his own religion and outlaws all other religions. All the religions. And this is where people begin to get slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands. Jewish people and Christians primarily, but others who refuse to acknowledge the Antichrist as their God and his new religion as their own religion. Okay, we'll see that more we progress. But guys, as we kind of bring this to a close, there's a lot of excitement among many Orthodox Jews in Israel to build what they call the Third Temple. It's really the Fourth Temple, the Tribulation Temple. Uh, now, I've, I have personally been to the Temple Institute uh, in Jerusalem several times. And uh, the Temple Institute is the place where they are preparing for this rebuilt temple. Okay, And if you go there, you can see the preparations for this fourth temple uh, being done uh, there uh, in preparation. Um, roughly 75%, or might be a little more now, this is going back a few years, but roughly 75% of all the instruments needed for temple worship according to the Old Testament regulations, have been completed. Have been completed. They have two yeshivas. What's a yeshiva? It's, a, it's like a Jewish seminary. It's a religious school, okay? So they've got two yeshivas, uh, which are training young men to be priests, men whose last name is Cohen. Why Cohen? Because the name Cohen means priest. And they figure, if you have the last name of Cohen, it's because... You, your family was in the family of priests. They don't have the genealogies anymore, okay? Um, but they're, they're training these, these young men, these uh, family, Cohen family. Uh, they're training them to sacrifice animals um, in the temple tradition, according to the temple, uh, according to the Mosaic uh, uh, law, okay? Uh, why? Why are they training these men to sacrifice animals? Because the Orthodox Jewish community understands that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Didn't God say that all the way back in Leviticus 17.11? He said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, animal sacrifices, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The writer to the Hebrews picked up on that, picked up on that, and reaffirmed it in Hebrews 9:22. Right, 
Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That's why in an Orthodox Jewish family today, uh, at um, Yom Kippur, okay, uh, they will go, I, I heard a story from a Jewish believer in Christ, and how that when he was a little boy, his grandmother, who was an Orthodox Jewess, um, I think it was Passover, okay, I'm sorry, Passover, and uh, she would take him, and he was just a little guy, take him to the neighborhood butcher, and uh, he would bring her in the back, and this little guy, her grandson went with him, went with her, and to where the chickens were. And she would be looking and looking and looking at these chickens. It seemed like forever. I had no idea what she was doing back then. Now I, I realize what she was looking for was one without spot or blemish. And she would give it to the butcher who would butcher it, and she would take the carcass by the feet, and she would wave it over her head and say, it's a kapura, a covering. But see, God never said anything about a chicken. God laid out very specifically what animals could be used to cover sin in the Old Covenant, right? Um, but many Jews, many Jews today, don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah who died for their sins. And so they realize they must make animal sacrifices for the forgiveness or the atonement of their sins. But that can only be done in a rebuilt temple. They understand they need to sacrifice animals. This is coming now, right? Uh, there are, there's a, a, a group of Jews, Orthodox Jews, who belong to the Temple Institute and are preparing for the, the, what they call the Third Temple, we call the Fourth Temple, the Tribulation Temple, to be built, right? Because they understand they've got to sacrifice animals, as God said, for the blood to cover their sins. But you need a temple. You need a temple to do that, right? The main obstacle standing in the way of them building this temple is that many Orthodox Jews believe that the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, and listen to me, it's not a mosque. It's erroneous to say the Dome of the Rock mosque. It's a shrine. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is just next to the Dome of the Rock, that is a mosque, okay? The Dome of the Rock is a shrine. We'll talk more about that as we go forward. But what has been the hindrance for the Jewish people to build their temple is that they believe the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock shrine, sits on the site where Solomon had built the original temple. Now look, you touch one brick on the Dome of the Rock and you're going to start a holy war to... Uh, to uh, End, end all holy wars, okay? The Jewish people understand. It's going to start a holy war to end all wars. So how will they accomplish this rebuilding of the temple of God without touching the Dome of the Rock? Well, next time, next time, we will look at this and we'll look at what many call the most volatile 35 acres of land on planet Earth. And that's something. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that everything is coming to pass or has come to pass exactly as you have told us in your word. You have not left us in darkness that these things should overtake us as a thief. And once the church is raptured, 
as the Holy Spirit begins to work in the world during the tribulation to bring many to Christ, they are going to flock to your word to find out. They're going to become big students of Revelation to find out what is coming during this period of time. And we just pray, Lord, you'll save them, so many. But we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.